Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Jeremy Gucci to the show today. He is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning innovation expert, and the CEO of Trend Hunter, the world's largest trend firm with 3 billion views, 200,000 idea hunters from 150 million visitors. He even got to help NASA prototype the journey to Mars. He is the winner of the Canadian Young Entrepreneur Award and Canada's Top 40 Under 40. But what I like best, he's he's been known to be called the guy to go for for what's next. So welcome to the What's Next show, Jeremy. So nice to be on the show, Tiffany. Well, when I read that, that you were the sort of go-to guy for what's next, I said, serendipitous. And here we <laughs> there we go. Nicely done. Nicely done. All right. Uh, well, before we get started, um, I do something called bullish and bearish. It's just a little fun. Get the juices flowing. Bullish is you are for it. Bearish is you are against it. Are you ready? Let's play it. Speed round. All right. First one. Traveling again in 2020. Bullish or bearish? Well, bearish, because what's going to happen when the world reopens is that uh, even if you're allowed to travel, the problem is that the fear of a global pandemic is going to arch over all of us for just a little bit too long. So I think 2020 is absolutely bearish, and I think half of 2021 remains bearish as well. Oh, boy. All right. Yeah, it's hard for me to hear. I Like you, uh, I flew a lot last year, 370,000 miles, six continents, like you know, 100 keynotes, like to hear that that may continue through 2021. It makes me just, I think I need to sit down. Oh, okay. All right. Next question. I'm in your same role as a keynote speaker. And then we run 20 events. Trend Hunter runs 20 future festivals around the world. So it's pretty painful for us. And generally when someone asks me where I live, I say, well, half in Toronto and half on Air Canada United. So I don't know where my friends are right now, but they're not flying the friendly skies. Yeah, I, I, I get you. All right, the next one. Chaos creates opportunity. Bullish. That's what I'm all about. So uh, I, I've written a number of books on chaos and most recently Create the Future, but in 2008, one called Exploiting Chaos. And what I study is the fact that chaos creates opportunity. Now, chaos and crisis are two different things. COVID-19, working from home, crisis. But from this, we emerge to a period where your consumer needs are evolving by the minute, we enter potential recession, but certainly some sort of contraction. And in that time period of chaos, there's a recharting of your path that creates opportunity. So if you look historically, there are iconic brands founded during periods of recession that include brands like Apple, Hewlett Packard, Fortune Magazine, uh, Airbnb, Pinterest, Uber. And I give you a hundred more, but I'll end my question uh, more briefly by saying yes. Chaos absolutely creates opportunity. So we'll take that as a bullish. <laughs> oh, bullish. Okay. All right. The next one, bullish or bearish. Artificial intelligence is better at trend spotting than humans. Currently mixed, long-term bullish. The issue, uh, Trend Hunter uses artificial intelligence and humans to advise about 700 brands on, on trends and research. And we find that you need to augment artificial intelligence with humans at this point, because really we use the word AI and it sounds sort of fancy uh, and, and even futuristic, but really it just means using technology. And the issue is that right now, many of the applications of AI are just about optimizing things. 
And if what you're trying to do is innovation, creativity, solving new problems, entering new uncharted territory, unfortunately, you can't just optimize something from the past. You really need to be looking uh, more sort of distantly in the future. So as a guy that runs an AI company, I would say to you that uh, it's still a mixture between AI and humans at this point in time. All right. Fair enough. All right. So that wraps up bullish and bearish, but I, you know, so much stuff you said in there, I, I want to continue to unpack and, and uh, hear more about, but before I dig into all of that, let me start with level setting, because I know that many people that listen to this podcast as well, many I've had on the show talk about innovation and I, and when we're going to go down this sort of conversation path, I, I'd like to make sure that we start with the basics, which for you, if you could define what innovation means to you. For me, innovation is a word that people do miscategorize and throw around and use a little bit too generically. But I think my biggest problem with the word innovation is that people, uh, some people assume it means only the big Eureka invention, the invention of the brand new iPhone, as if it's some giant thing you ha one has to do that might not apply to your role. But actually innovation is a little bit simpler because it's the process of creatively figuring out something new. And for you, that might mean a new role, a new product, a new service, or just a different way of doing things. But the misnomer of the Eureka idea is that most innovations, most breakthroughs are actually just a little simple twist and turn on something from the past. Uh, it's, it's not that someone just invented the iPhone. It's a slightly different BlackBerry or Palm Pilot. Oh, shots fired. Sounds so bad to say. But the reality is that most breakthroughs are usually a twist and turn or a recombination of something that's actually already within your grasp. Well, and, and I couldn't agree more. And so what what do you think um, the best way is to uncover or find those better ideas, right? Those better sort of twists and turns or reimagination of something, because I think everything is an iteration of what came before it. Exactly. And you know, that that's the topic of Create the Future, the new book. And what I dive into is I think we've reached a point in time where everyone wants innovation to happen. Got it. But most people don't really know the tactics, tools, techniques, the actual steps that you would do to do what's next. And I think that my favorite sort of realization that I dove into in Create the Future is this concept that uh, you have many great paths, new ideas, probably within your grasp. But the issue is that there are a series of, uh, I call them sort of um, blockages that force us into path dependency, so traps of path dependency. And, and what that means, path dependency, is a term from the 1950s that we get caught in a path, especially when things are doing good, and on that path, we repeat past decisions. And when you're on your path, you start missing out on all the great ideas that were within your grasp. And those traps include things like the traps of your own success, the subtlety of new opportunity and how new ideas seem awkward and unfamiliar, the simple notion that it's easy to do nothing at all. And all these things start adding up and then you end up uh, gripping to the path. And I give you all sorts of fun little anecdotes about it, but, but fundamentally, when I think about coming up with something new and the next step to getting your breakthrough, a big first part of that is removing the steps that are blocking you from seeing the great ideas that are already within your grasp. 
And and so and I I think that that's fantastic because sometimes I hear definitions or concepts and you know I'm I'm a huge fan very bullish on sort of simplifying and kind of getting back down to the brass tacks of the basics and sometimes that's like that's what needs to happen this I feel like over time as technology has evolved I mean I've been in and around and selling tech now for 25 years. Uh, so it's been a minute. Um, and I feel like with each kind of new new offer, new technology, something innovative or disruptive, that it, it layers on this level of complexity to everything that we do. And so, you know, if you're looking for new ideas and you say kind of removing steps, that's kind of like removing that complexity, right? And that this the simple twist on things. And so, you know, what what would what do you advise your clients? Uh, you know, and those who follow your work really um, on what's the kind of the best first step to make that change happen. Like, so sure. what's, what's the way to get there? Yep. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out what are the traps that impede you most, especially as a successful person. Because if you look historically, um, you know, Kodak invented the digital camera in 1975. Xerox invented the personal computer in the 60s and took Bill Gates and Steve Jobs on tours a decade after these things were already produced and sitting in a, in a warehouse. Blockbuster invented online screening of movies and had uh, three chances to buy Netflix for $50 million. And I go on and on and on and on and on. And you've heard some of these examples, but I've gone a step deeper and I've interviewed all of those people, all of those inventors. And what I found that's so interesting is that in almost all situations, what happens is that even if you get a great idea, like the digital camera, within your organization, there are things that will hold you back from commercializing or pursuing that. And then you dismiss the potential of the ideas in front of you. So if I take the digital camera as an example, Steve Sasson, who invented the digital camera in 75 at Kodak, said he loved his job at Kodak. He loved it. It was great. They let him play around. He tried all sorts of new things. He made a digital camera. By the 90s, they had a website where you could upload pictures of your face to share socially with your friends on the internet. Sounds familiar, but Facebook is until 2005. So the thing about it is that he told me a company's great culture can be the seed to its own destruction. And at Kodak, what happened is that they valued the perfect Kodak quality print. Their culture was about beating Fuji with this beautiful quality print. And so he could experiment as much as he wanted on digital and they'd give him some money, but they weren't gonna run with anything or release anything because it wasn't better at that one thing that their culture revolved around. So a company's great culture can be the seed to its own destruction. And I think when you start to understand some of these traps, you start to realize in your own world, yeah, you know, maybe I do have ideas that are not perfectly developed, but there's more to them. And the issue is that you get so good at optimizing that thing that's your number one product. You get so good at that that everything else seems awkward in comparison, whether it's your invention or some awkward thing that's being launched by some random new startup. And the issue is we dismiss those things and then that new startup gets a little bigger, takes a little more market share, and then one day gets a partnership or an acquisition from our competitor and we get disrupted. So that's the process of how disruption happens but it stems from the very origin beginning of the fact that you have so much great potential within your grasp, but many of the ideas that you have probably seem awkward, 
or you're missing out on the true power of your own thinking because of how we get caught repeating past decisions. Yeah, well, there's two things in there I always like, right? Success is the worst teacher, a la sort of Bill Gates, bringing him up, right? Sure. And then the other one was uh, really the opening quote of my book, um, Growth IQ, which which was, it was a study by Bain that was like, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong off the top of my head, but it was like 96% of firms sort of uh, um, smaller than 5 billion, I think it was like 92% above or 87% above 5 billion, that the reason that they could not... Uh, sort of achieve consistent and repeatable growth. And even some things like innovation were weaved in there as well was because of uh, internal issues, not external uh, things happening, you know, and obviously right now, globally, we're in this global pandemic and depending on when we listen to this and where you are in the world, you know, uh, whether you're open or closed or still at stay at home orders or kind of a mix of those two things, um, you know, it's, it's, that has huge impact, but I think the internal things uh, sometimes have more impact and culture is one of them. What what else would you say behind culture uh, as being something that gets in the way of being more innovative? Yeah, so uh, an example I'll give you is just the subtlety of new ideas and our desire to repeat past decisions. So our favorite, uh, the, actually the in Create the Future, the example I used as the metaphor for the book is that, and you'll like this one, there are no horses in space, but as a smart and clever person, you should expect there to be two horses in space. And that doesn't make sense yet, but if you like horses or even horse dimensions, I'll tell you something fun. Those horses should be four foot eight and a half inches wide. Now you don't even know what I'm talking about. Why should, why should there be two horses in space that are four foot eight and a half inches wide? Makes no sense. But the reason why a smart person should expect that is that NASA's solid rocket booster was determined based on the width of those two horses and their dimensions, not coincidentally, but specifically because that is the width of two horses. Now, if you really want to understand why NASA would make the solid rocket booster based off the width of two horses, you oddly have to go back in time a lot. In fact, in Wikipedia, you'd go all the way back to the era of the Roman Empire. The Romans had the biggest land because they patrolled that land with a two-horse Roman war chariot. The war chariot was pulled by horses throughout Europe and it created ruts in the road. And if you drove as a little farmer, if you drove your wagon on one of the European little highways, you might break a wagon wheel when it gets caught in one of the ruts caused by the Roman war chariots. So if you were a clever little farmer, you would measure the width of the ruts and you would determine that the width was four foot eight and a half inches wide. So pretty soon everyone that is a clever farmer makes their wagon four foot eight and a half inches wide, the same width as the Roman war chariot. Then we invent wagonways, which are carts pulled in and out of mines by horses, and we put those carts on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. Then we start making trains and put them in Europe on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. Americans make their own trains and they try a few different measurements, but eventually they settle on one measurement, four eight and a half. Now we have speed trains that go 200 miles an hour, some of them on paths that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. And when NASA wants to ship the solid rocket boosters from Utah to Florida to launch into outer space, they must put them on train tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. And you can check it out. You can fact check me and you'll say, oh, but the solid rocket boosters are a little bit wider than the track. They overlap, whatever. It doesn't change the fact that they're determined essentially based on the width of two horses' butts. And it goes to show we're more dependent on past decisions than we like to think. 
and everyone wants innovation to happen, but realistically, we get so caught on the ease of repeating past decisions and justifying them based on consistency and all this other stuff that we start just blinding ourselves to what is the right decision. Like, that's the way we've always done it. Exactly. <laughs> it's always been four feet, eight inches wide, right? Well, why don't you try this from an innovation standpoint? I mean, the innovation killer is, you know, I and I consistently hear this, and I'm sure you do too, right? Oh, that's not how we do it here. We tried it. It didn't work. You know, our, com our competitors tried it. It didn't work. Our culture can't handle it. Like there's, because, and, and most of them, is you just take that, well, that's the way it happens. Like it's four feet, eight inches wide. Now, from a consistency standpoint, it's like, would you want to really develop a new USB port or just everybody use USB sure. ports? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, um, and actually, when you, the, with the wording you're using exactly, it reminds me of another story. So sorry to do two stories in a row, but hopefully you'll like these and, and take these with you on your journey. Um, but there is a, a tale of a, a psych experiment. And it's on some monkeys and you got a cage and you got a ladder and you got some bananas at the top of the ladder and a, a little hose. And there's a first group of monkeys in there and one monkey goes up the ladder to grab the bananas and then all the monkeys get sprayed by the hose. It gets off the ladder. And the next time that a new monkey enters into the cage, it, it thinks, oh, I'm going to go up the ladder and get those bananas. So it does it and then all the monkeys get sprayed by the water. So pretty soon the monkeys know, and every time a new monkey is entered, as soon as it gets on the ladder, they beat that monkey up so that it doesn't try and grab the bananas. Then you swap some monkeys out, and you put new monkeys in, and they keep on doing that pattern. You touch the ladder, we're going to beat you up. But pretty soon you can swap out all of the original monkeys. So all that are left are brand new monkeys that have never seen what happens if you climb the ladder and it doesn't matter because they've learned if you touch the ladder you get beaten up why because that's the way that things are done around here yeah and and that i think look change is hard you know humans we've proven time and time again that change is hard i always tend to use the look you know it's it's january 1st i'm going to the gym you know january 10th where's the gym <laughs> like you know right so uh, change is hard. And so, you know, as much of this is look, some of this is just human behavior and habit. Um, what are the things that, that leaders or team members or even individual contributors can do to try and give themselves a little bit of space in their brain? You know, our, uh, my CEO calls it kind of the beginner's mindset, right? You know, giving a little bit of space in your, in your, in your head and in the way you do things to just try something different and it might not work, right? It's not sure. everything's going to stick, but some of it is just the whole process. Yeah. So one of the uh, sort of strategies that we use with our clients would be trying to set up uh, your innovation and creativity like you would a, a stock portfolio. And I'll, I'll back up before that to just say two little interesting traps that um, you learn. Uh, my background's all finance. There's two traps of a gambler that you need to study when you become a, a chartered financial analyst. And um, one of them is house is money, and one of them is the snake bite effect. And these are the terms for what happens when there is an irrational win or an irrational loss. The snake bite effect is that after something really difficult happens, like COVID, or if you're a gambler, a really big loss, you become irrationally conservative. And then in the next moves, you're too conservative and you don't do the right thing. Yet you know as an investor, if times are bad, you shouldn't sell your Salesforce, Microsoft, and Google stocks. You need to keep a portfolio because you'll miss the rebound. 
But similarly, if people have a really big win in innovation or in gambling or in the investment market, what happens is you think it's house's money, it doesn't belong to you. And, be, and because of that, you start gambling irrationally, uh, um, aggressively. What you actually need is a disciplined mindset like you would have with your stock portfolio. And you know this in investing and your CEO knows this and all the people you're trying to get buy-in from know that with a stock portfolio, you need some high risk and some medium and some low. The same concept applies to innovation, which is to say, how are you separating out your uh, more aggressive plays and your medium risk and your low risk in order to make sure that you're balanced and still trying new things? And that's not always easy to do, but you can do it with money or with time. And I'll give you an example. At the BBC in the late 90s, they started losing market share and people stopped tuning in to watch the BBC. So the CEO and CFO got fired and the new CEO and CFO came in and they knew they wanted to make a difference, but they didn't know how to change a big system. It was kind of tough and people were set in their ways and they didn't know how to change it. So they kept everything in place but they put a gambling fund in for ideas that failed the normal screening process. And one of the first ideas that failed the screening process, but got the gambling fund money was the office, which turned out to be the biggest financial success in their global export uh, in BBC's history at the time. And the office failed the screening process, but it qualified for the gambling fund money. You can create a gambling fund in your own role, perhaps with money, but most definitely with time. What proportion of your time or your team's time are you spending investigating new things, studying different industries, and trying to figure out new ideas you could incorporate to, to shift your direction? Well, so, you know, it, because we're in such an unusual time, what, what have you found to be expected? And then on the, on the other side of that coin, surprising, uh, you know, in how the market industries, your customers have responded. Sure. So, I mean, my world is studying chaos. And, and after the Exploding Chaos book in 2008, I, I went a lot deeper and I started working with a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs on, uh, you know, in their chaotic, most chaotic times. So from my perspective, this is kind of getting into the sweet spot of what I've, I've studied for, for 20 years. So I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the surprise that people don't get, but that you should because it's very encouraging. And it's that chaos creates opportunity, bringing us back to how we kick things off. An example I'll give you that's a fun story to leave off on is that Fortune magazine was started four months after the 1929 Wall Street crash. It was priced at a dollar an issue, which made it the most expensive magazine ever published. In fact, in 1929, one dollar could buy you a sweater or one copy of Fortune magazine. And so it seems like a terrible idea, but despite that, what happens, the surprising thing, is that chaos creates opportunity. People have new needs. And in that time period, people have lost their jobs due to decisions made behind boardroom doors, and they wanted answers. And Fortune offered a glimpse behind those boardroom doors into how did we get here and when might we emerge? Put differently, Fortune was an answer to a new consumer need. And as a result, during the Great Depression, this incredibly priced magazine ended up with half a million subscribers and $7 million of modern day profit as a luxury business publication during the Great Depression. Chaos creates opportunity. And so that, that's the opportunity, right? And so, so what surprised you? Well, what surprises me is this idea that uh, 
people get very worried and, and they only see downside. And there is a shakeup. There's unmistakably a shakeup. It's difficult. Chaos uh, reshuffles the deck. But the surprising thing is that it's more difficult than you could imagine to get people to see the absolute light on the other side. Because you know what? COVID-19 is not forever. COVID-19 is a, a blip. We'll remember it forever. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not undermining it. And it's a crisis. But we emerge from this. This is a global pandemic, but it's a disruptive event that is the worst that we've seen economically in any of our lives. But we get through it. That's the difference. So I think that the surprise is that people accept two, there's two new normals. There is a fact that we will be different and consumer needs are changing by the minute. But there's also a fact that right now, the surprising thing, I guess, is that people extrapolate their current situation and think it's forever. It's not. Yeah, and I, I actually no longer use the term new normal. I use the term new future um, because I think we're at, I, yeah, I think we're at this crossroads where we could actually create what that new future looks like in so many ways and, uh, you know, getting accessibility to people for even things like, you know, internet connectivity and Wi-Fi. If you're going to edu educate and, and, you know, from a healthcare perspective and serve and groceries and delivery and all that, if people need to have access to to the internet and there's 20 million people in the US who still don't. Um, so I, I feel like it's it's an opportunity for us to create the new future versus, because uh, the normal, I, I don't know if, I don't know, would we want to go back to the to the time we polluted the planet and, you know, and, you know, you know people were, were struggling, you know, it's worse right now, but I, you know, I think there's so much opportunity to, to see people innovate and it's inspiring to see what, what companies are doing to come out the other side of this uh, better and stronger um, for their communities and their employees. Yeah, I mean, two things. First, thanks for basically using the title of the book, Create the Future. Love it. Um, <laughs> but secondly, I think an interesting note that you, you commented on there is about the environment. And we know that Gen Z already has a much higher uh, bond to brands that care about the environment, personal beliefs about the environment and sustainability. And they generally believe that the rest of us have ruined the world uh, for them. And what's so interesting about that group of our future leaders is, is that when we're going through a situation like this, it's tough not to realize that us as humans are little insignificant things in this giant globe that still controls us. We are still subservient to the massive planet that we are on. And I think what's interesting as upside about this terrible situation is that it causes us to rethink about our role relative to the planet, especially for that group that thinks differently than you and I much, much more conscientiously about the environment. And therefore, when we emerge, people in an optimistic future will have a much stronger um, uh, sense of urgency or importance about actually creating the future with a, a more sustainable planet. Yeah, well, I think that's a fantastic way to end, right? I think that um, understanding that there's so much more out there and we're just a small, you know, blip on the on what has happened and what will happen sort of, you know, as the human species continues to evolve. Uh, so I just want to say, Jeremy, thank you for spending some time with us today on the What's Next podcast. Enjoyed all your insights and stories. It's the great, greatest way to get people to think differently about how, uh, you know, things that they may be dealing with today. So thank you for sharing those with us today. Well, thank you, Tiffany. Let's create the future. Absolutely. 
How great was that having a conversation with Jeremy about all the trends and what's happening next? His thoughts on innovation and chaos uh, and the opportunity that it gets us for new ideas to stimulate thinking about how we could possibly do things better and differently, reimagining what the future could look like. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the What's Next podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends, download, share, and I look forward to having you join me again next time. Stay safe.